if you can do that, if you're interested in missions and supporting them, uh, that that's right after this meeting downstairs. We have been looking at First Peter. And we've been looking at three graces, and we are in the middle of that. The second grace, which is the grace of salvation. Grace is just a matter of us receiving something that we do not deserve. In fact, people have used the acronym G-R-A-C-E, God's Riches at Christ's Expense. And probably that's a very good expression, a very good um, description so at this point, we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, and this closes up the, um, the section on salvation. So let's uh, start by looking at the verses preceding verse 4, just for context. And Peter is talking about those who have accepted Christ and what their life should be like. And he says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So we want to talk more about salvation and what happens to us and what we belong to once we come to Jesus Christ and accept his gift of forgiveness and eternal life. But before we get into it, let's just look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that before the world even began, you had a plan. Before you ever created Adam, you knew that we would rebel. But your desire to have our worship was such that you created us anyway, gave us a free will, knowing that with that free will came the possibility of rebellion and disobedience, which certainly has taken place. And knowing that that would take place, you provided a Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, to reconcile us to yourself. We give you thanks for this wonderful plan and for the gift of the Lord Jesus, through whom we have this grace of salvation. We ask, Father, if there's anyone here this morning who has never given their life, their heart, their lives, their their everything to the Lord Jesus, that the Holy Spirit would prick their hearts today, that they would see how important it is and how important it is that they do it now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. My wife was listening to the radio as she was driving on Friday, driving home from Omaha, and uh, she listened to uh, a gal that you're probably familiar with. Her first name is Jan, and she's on the Christian radio station. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Yes, Jan Markell, exactly. And she was talking about, and she had some guests on with her, talking about the tribulation period. And when they had finished their discussion, and all the horrible things that are going to happen during the tribulation and the great tribulation, Jan said, why would anybody want to wait to give their lives to Christ. Why would anyone be going through that tribulation? All of the heartache, all of the the, the persecution and, and beheading and all of those things that are going to happen to believers during that seven-year period, why would anyone want to wait and find themselves in that period of time and suffering all of those things? And we believe that the rapture is going to take place before the tribulation, which means those of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior are not going to go through those years of torment and persecution. But there will be those who will not accept Christ until they are in that period of time 
and the suffering is going to be tremendous. Very, very hard to adequately describe. So what we're talking about here is this privilege, this honor that we have in coming to Christ now, in seeking from him forgiveness for our sins and the gift of eternal life so that we are going to be with him in heaven when all of these things are happening on the earth. And some some people think we're being persecuted now, but believe me, if you think this is bad, just wait. It's going to get a whole lot worse. And only those who know Jesus Christ are going to escape. So getting into this passage, starting at verse uh, 4, Peter writes, As you come to him, and that's what each one of us has the opportunity to do, to come to Christ. He's not going to force us. Uh, He's going to give us that opportunity. As you come to him, a living stone. Now there's a strange phrase. Jesus Christ is being described as a living stone. But look at what he says. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So a lot of Christians are going to be put to shame during the tribulation period. But those who come to Christ will not be put to shame. And now he was writing this, uh, he's quoting something the Lord said to Israel. And let me make very clear here, we do not believe in supersessionism, in replacement theology, that the church has replaced Israel in prophecy. That's not what the scripture teaches. It teaches that God still has a plan for Israel. He still has made promises that have not been fulfilled for Israel. And the church is not going to replace Israel in those promises. But the church has a very special place as the bride of Christ. There's a a parable that I love where this vineyard owner rents out his vineyard to these tenants. And when the time comes of the harvest, Jesus tells this parable and he's telling it to the Pharisees. And... uh, and they don't send the harvest, the, the owner's part of the harvest. So he sends his servants to them, and some they beat, and some they kill. And, and after doing this several times, he finally says, I'm going to send my son, my only son. Him they will, re- they will revere. And so he sends his son, and they say to themselves, let's kill him, because then the inheritance will be ours. And he's describing exactly what will happen or what has happened in Israel. He sent the prophets. He sent all of the teachers of the Old Testament. And yet Israel did not come back to him the way he wanted them to. And consequently, he says to the Pharisees, he says, what is this landowner going to do? And they say, he's going to take the land away from those and give it to others who will give him his his fruit in his season. And he says, that's exactly what's going to happen. And he's talking about taking away from Israel the blessing and giving it to a new nation, a nation that he creates through the blood of Christ, the church. It's a fascinating, I would encourage you to go back and read that parable. But in the Old Testament, we see this prophesied. In Isaiah, we read, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone. A tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be held, be in haste. And that means to run from your enemies, to be in haste to get out of there. So 
Even the prophet Isaiah got this message from the Lord that he was going to set a cornerstone. And that cornerstone is Jesus Christ. And he didn't do that until Christ came. And as the death of Christ purchased the penalty for our sins, Christ was set as the cornerstone of a brand new building. (laughs) A building of not only the living stone who is the cornerstone, but every one of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior as living stones. So he goes on in 1 Peter 2, he says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. What is a spiritual house? Well, houses that are meant for spiritual activities are called temples. And so he's talking about building a temple for the Holy Spirit. And we, as those who know Jesus Christ as Savior, as members of the church, the universal church, we become the building blocks for that temple for the presence of God. And he goes on to to explain a little bit more about this. And you may ask, well, okay, what's a living stone? What was Christ a living stone? How was he a living stone? And how are we living stones? Well, when you think about it, the, the foundation of any building has to be absolutely secure. If it's not, then as the storms come and so on and so forth, that building is not going to stand. We've seen all kinds of devastation in, um, in countries like Turkey recently with earthquakes and just entire homes and entire villages destroyed. The foundations and the structure was not built to withstand that kind of, a, of an earthquake. But God is building a building a home for himself, a house for himself, and he's building it with living stones, you and me. In Ephesians 2, we read, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So we are being built up on the cornerstone of the person of Jesus Christ and his work, and he is God himself. What better foundation could we possibly have to build a structure than being founded on God himself? And then it goes on to say in Ephesians, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are a temple. We are being built up as living stones added one by one as people come to Christ to build a place for the presence of the Lord. What a tremendous privilege that is. And Peter is telling the Christians here that if you're a member of Christ, if you are uh, one of those who have been born again, then you are one of these living stones. Now, if you think about how a building is built, and I'm not a construction person, um, but every stone depends on the stones around it. You can't have a stone, oh, I just put this stone up here. If there's nothing below it, it's just going to fall to the ground, right? Everything has to be built on the cornerstone and then built gradually from the bottom up, every stone relying on one another. Now, what does that mean for us as Christians? Well, let me tell you what happened to us last week. We were in Florida for the week of spring break. Well, not this past week, but the week before. 
And we were invited to go down with some friends from Lake Geneva down to Florida. They go down for about a month every winter, and they invited us to come for a week. And we did. We went down. Their names are Terry and Jorgen Knorr. The the last name Knorr is probably familiar to those of you at Emmaus because of Rachel Knorr, who, who worked there. But this is her parents, Jorgen and Terry. And we went down there in looking forward to some good fellowship with them. Uh, we always enjoy being with them. And while we were there, they wanted to do all this sightseeing, uh, but we wanted to just spend time with them. And as a result, we ended up meeting a couple of other couples, a couple named Dan and Holly. Great believers, just a delight to be with. They live in the Lake Geneva area as well. And we we went on a boat ride on Dan's boat, and all the time we're talking and we're reciting verses to each other. Well, do you know this one? You know, do you know this one? Well, this one starts this way. How does it finish? You know, just going back and forth just with the Word of God and just sharpening one another and encouraging one another. And that's what living stones do. We encourage one another. We build on each other. And then we had another couple we met, Bill and Ann, and they invited us all over for breakfast, which we did, and just had a delightful time. And when believers get together, if we're doing what we should be doing, and if our hearts are where they should be, focused on Christ, we just have tremendous fellowship together. Have you noticed that? I hope that when you're with other believers, that Christ becomes the center of the conversation. That's how we build one another up. Going to 2 Corinthians, we read, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Obviously, the answer to that is no, none. For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He's talking here about the church, not Israel, but the church. And then in 1 Corinthians 3, we read, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now, when you study, I hope you go back and you figure out what are the the parts of speech and so on that are being used here. Because in this case, you'll notice it says you, and that you is plural. It's always plural in this verse. So you and you and so on. And you, there's three of them, and they're all plural. But the word temple is singular. We, together, the plurality of believers are building one temple, a house for God a place where God's presence can dwell. It's a beautiful picture. In Second Chronicles, we read this promise that God gave, gave to Israel, and I believe it applies to us. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal, the, heal their land. You know, we look at our land here in the United States and what's happening in our culture, and we, we just shake our heads. What in the world is going on? But I would encourage you, rather than just bemoaning the condition of the culture, take it to the Lord. If my people who are called by my name, you know, we are called by his name. We're called Christians, and that comes from Christ. They are little Christs, and uh, the believers were called Christians first in Antioch. And that's been going on for 2,000 years. We have taken his name. And that that um, 
commandment that says thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. We always think about it as being swearing by the Lord's name. That's not what it means. It means don't take my name as your identification if you're not willing to live in a way that brings me glory. And he was saying that to Israel. They were the people of Jehovah. And his name, uh, it reflected on his name when they did anything, good or bad. And he wants us, those who have taken his name, to live in such a way that he gets glory and his reputation is enhanced. And he and people will worship him as a result of our actions and our attitudes and our words. If my people who are called by my name, that's you and I, if we humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways, then he will hear from heaven and will forgive our sins and heal our land. Now, Chad and uh, Stephanie just came back from Israel. And there is a model of the city of Jerusalem at the um, at the museum there, and it's outdoors, and it's about the, the size, or it represents the first century uh, city of Jerusalem. And this is what the temple looked like, or how they depicted the temple here. Just a beautiful building. Um, lots of rooms and, and different things. Uh, there's a the Holy of Holies and the sanctuary and the court and then the court of women. And um, on the lower part there on the left, you see this little room kind of doesn't line up with the walls. That was the, the chamber of hewn stones. That's where the Sanhedrin would meet. So all of these things about this temple, we we come to understand. But the most important thing is that the presence of God was in the Holy of Holies. It was a place for his presence to reside. And that's what he wants for us, as living stones being built up into a temple in which he resides. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. He wants a place where he can reside. Again, back in 1 Peter 2, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Now, that's not a new phrase in Scripture. That's not a first century phrase or a New Testament phrase. Actually, it goes all the way back to the prophecies of Israel. Uh, Back in Exodus 19, we read, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what he was promising to Israel. But Israel didn't live up to that promise. And so that promise is repeated in the New Testament for our benefit, that God still wants a kingdom of priests, a holy nation that bears his name. Again, back in... First Peter, we read, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, the Old Testament sacrifices, you know, there were goats and, and lambs and uh, bullocks and all these things that were being sacrificed. But what does he expect to, of us as New Testament priests? Well, let's take a look at a few, because we have some examples given to us in the New Testament. In Romans 12... Paul starts here by saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
You see, he expects us as living stones to be holy, to be the kinds of stones you would want to put into a temple. I mean, you wouldn't want to put a, a, a stone in there that was cracked and falling apart and, and just didn't have the structure and the strength that you need for that wall or whatever you're building in that building. He needs us to be holy and acceptable stones, living stones. You remember what he said about Israel? If you will turn from your wicked ways. And he expects us to do that. He expects us to live righteous lives. And what does righteousness mean? It simply means to do the right thing. One of my uh, favorite series of movies is the Jesse Stone series by Tom, starring Tom Selleck. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that or not, but he's a, a police officer in a little town called Paradise, Massachusetts. And every now and then he'll confront somebody and they'll say, well, why is that right for you and, and, you know, wrong for me? And he'll say, I'm not in the right and wrong business. I'm in the legal and illegal business. <laughs> but you know what? You and I are in the right and wrong business. We are required to be righteous and holy, and that means doing the right thing. And it's not hard. We look at our lives ahead of us and we say, how can I possibly do the right thing for the rest of my life? Well, don't think of it that way. Think about how can I make the next decision to be the right thing? And just take it one decision at a time, one act at a time, one word at a time. Do the right thing and be righteous. In Hebrews 13, we read, Through him, then, let us continually offer uh, offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So first of all, we're to be living sacrifices. That is to say, give our bodies to the Lord as living sacrifices. There's a lot of things we could do with our bodies that we don't really want to do as living stones, as those who have identified ourselves with Christ. We want to give our bodies, our flesh to the Lord as a living sacrifice. Deny those things, whether it's drugs or whatever it happens to be that brings some kind of pleasure to the body. We want to deny those things and live as living stones fit for a temple and offering ourselves as sacrifices. So priests offer sacrifices. If we're a a kingdom of priests, we should be offering sacrifices. First ourselves, and now the sacrifice of praise. Constantly praising God for what he's done. And he has done some tremendous things, and we all know that. He goes on to say, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Here's another kind of sacrifice. I would challenge you to go into the New Testament if you if you have a concordance and look up the, the phrase good works and see how many times good works are associated with us as Christians. In fact, it says that God has foreordained good works for us to do. If we don't do them, who's going to do them? And it's the good works that we do that are a sacrifice to the Lord. Another example in Philippians 4, we read, I have, this is Paul talking, he said, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Supporting others' ministries, meeting needs, whatever it happens to be, those are, those are sacrifices to the Lord. And as priests, we should be doing that. 
Back to 1 Peter chapter 2. So the honor, that is to say, this privilege, this great honor that God has bestowed on you, of being a part of this temple, of being a part of the body of Christ, so this honor is for you who believe. But for those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The, you don't have to read very far in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, especially as you get to the end of the books and you read about the, the trials of Jesus and the crucifixion, to find that there were, there was animosity between the priests and the Sanhedrin and, and the Lord Jesus. They wanted to kill him. They were looking for a way to kill him. The stones that the builders rejected, that's the priests. They rejected the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And it goes on to say, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They were offended at what he was teaching, even though it was in concert with everything that they had learned from the Old Testament. Psalm 118 says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So this was not a new idea. This wasn't something that God was saying, oh, well, let's do this now. No, he prophesied this back by the psalmist in Psalm 118. He was going to do this. And then in Isaiah 8, he says, And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They didn't want to have anything to do with being faithful to God. It was all about power. It was all about their positions. It was all about preserving the nation instead of coming to Christ. Peter goes on to say, They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. Those who rejected Christ, they stumbled. They rejected him, and their destiny is to be separated from God eternally in a place of torment. But look at the contrast. But you are a chosen race. So they were destined to be destroyed. We, on the other hand, who in no Christ as Savior, we are chosen to experience this honor of salvation, this grace of salvation. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Does that sound familiar? Should. A people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of his darkness, out of darkness into his marvelous light. That you may proclaim the excellency. What's the motto here? Anybody? To make God famous. Do you proclaim the excellencies of God so that the people around you will know who he is? That's what Peter's talking about here. This is what we as Christians should be doing. Again in verse 10, he says, Once you were not a people. (laughs) Think of the people in the church. I mean, we, I have a, a friend who's a part of the Aero Club that I belong to who's from Ukraine, a believer. His name is Taras. And Taras is, um, probably as far from being a, a United States person as you could get. Totally different culture, totally different experiences, coming from a country that is now war-torn, and yet he and I have fellowship. Isn't that amazing? We were never a people. He and I, but now we are in Christ. We are a holy nation. It's amazing. How long has the world been seeking world peace? (laughs) It'll never happen, but there is world peace 
among believers in Jesus Christ. It's incredible. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Those he's talking to who have accepted Christ as Savior have now received the mercy of God. Now we would all like to think that if we ever had to stay in, stand in front of a judge, that the judge would grant mercy to us. The problem is that if I murder someone... And I go before the judge and the judge says, ah, this time I'm going to give you, I'm going to let you off. I'm going to give you mercy. Well, the problem is that that's not justice. The relatives of the person I murdered are not getting justice, are they? Because I'm getting mercy and not having to pay for the crime that I committed. Well, think of our sin. God wants to offer us mercy. But the problem is, If he offers us mercy without our sins being paid for, then how can he possibly be just? This is one of the questions I have for my Saudi students. I say, I ask them, does Allah require you to pay for those things you do that are wrong? And their answer is always, no, we just have to have enough good work so that we can get into heaven. And I said, well, then Allah cannot be just, can he? If he doesn't punish Uh, crimes, sins, how can he be just? But in the case of God, Jehovah, Yahweh, he has already paid for the sins through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And since the sins have been paid for, he is open to offer mercy to whomever he chooses. And that's why Peter is saying here, once you had not received mercy... But now, and we could almost say, through the blood that Christ shed to pay for your sins, you have received mercy. Isn't that amazing? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you're here this morning and you have never received mercy from God, You have never had your sins taken care of. You're still living with the burden and guilt of all of those things that through your life you know have been rebellious or disobedient to God, and you're living with the guilt of all that. God wants to give you mercy. He sent his son to pay the penalty of all that so that he would be free to offer you mercy. And all you need to do is respond. Do you remember it said that those who rejected him were destined to um, be destroyed. But we are a chosen nation. If you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, there's some hard times coming. You need to get right with God. You need to acknowledge your sin. It's been paid for, but you need to acknowledge it and ask for forgiveness. And God will do that. He will offer you mercy. He will give you forgiveness and he will give you eternal life and be one of these living stones that we've been talking about. It's an amazing thing to God, to watch God building this temple and the people he's adding to it and and from all over the world. Uh, There are things happening in Iran, um, just some tremendous revival going on there and other parts of the world. He's, he's bringing in living stones. He's building his temple. And those of us who know him as Savior, we're part of that. And if you haven't come to that point in your life, I I can only say you better do it soon. 
Chad, would you close in prayer for us, please? Father, we are indeed grateful. We're indeed grateful that you are the living stone, that you are building us up, or that we can, through our through our lives and, and pursuits of you through the power of the Spirit can offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to you. May we live in that way, not in our own strength, but in your strength, so that we might be we might be a light to a world that is without hope, that we might shine in a way that others would want to see the hope that's in our hearts. We love you, God, and we praise you this morning. May we be changed, not in our own power, but in your power. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.